We are coming to the last one in our series on the armour of God uh, in Ephesians chapter 6. And yes, I'm just trying to remember what slides I put in what order. And I think it's safe. Okay, so the verse we're looking at today is from Ephesians chapter 6, and it's verse 17, where Paul says, Take the helmet of salvation, which we looked at last week, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Okay, so that's the verse for this week. And it's the last one in the armour of God. There are six pieces. This is the last one, and number five is up there as well, but I thought I'd give you a quick, che- quick test, see if you've been listening over the last uh, five or six weeks. Can you tell me what the other four bits of the armour of God are? And, just because we don't want any like goody two-shoes, you can only give one each. I don't want anyone shouting out all of them. And go on, Ian. The sandals. The sandals of? Faith. All close. Oh, sorry. Oh, close. <laughs> the sandals of something. Sandal of the, of the gospel of peace. Very good. Belt of truth. Shield of faith. And there's one more. Oh, we've had the belt of truth. What's the other one that isn't up there? So our belt of truth, shield of faith, sandals of the gospel of peace, helmet of salvation, and sword of spirit are up there. What are we missing? Breastplate of righteousness. Excellent. So we've covered them all off. So that's all six parts of the armour of God. I thought we'd have a quick recap before we get into the, the sword of the spirit. So there they all are. And uh, you've got all of them, including the helmet of salvation, which was written down, so I didn't... Uh, I think I should need to ask that. So I looked at the, the belt of truth. Ian did that one. And we looked at how uh, belief in the, the truth of the gospel leads us to be um, to trust in Jesus so much that we are a people who are true in ourselves because Jesus is true. So we become an army who are uh, full of integrity. We have the breastplate of righteousness. It helps us to not believe the lies the devil throws at us. Um, about our guilt, because Jesus dealt with all that. It leads us to be eternally grateful to Jesus in all that we do, because our righteousness comes from him. It's something that he gives us. Then we looked at the sandals um, of the readiness of the gospel of peace. And we looked that we can adapt to the devil's varied attacks in battle, um, leading us to have a strong foundation, which is the gospel. We looked at the shield of faith a couple of weeks ago, to protect us from the devil's lies that he throws at us. Um, that cause division and dissatisfaction and we learn that we can trust in Jesus to fight together and that our shield of faith can defend us from those and last week we looked at the helmet of salvation um, to protect us from the doubts and discouragements and deceit that the devil tries to throw at us because the gospel shapes the way that we live and we think leading us to become people who are more and more like Jesus every day so from those we can see that our protection from God is based on Jesus and what he's done and the gospel that he's given us. It's solid and it's unchanging. And it's our response and our use of the armour that changes when things go wrong. So it's not Jesus that changes when we struggle and we, and we suffer and we sin. It's the way that we're responding to what Jesus has done um, and our use of the armour. But we're looking today at the sword of the Spirit. And the sword is part of the armour. It's not an optional extra if you fancy it. You can just take up the sword of the Spirit. Um, Paul puts it in there as take up the, the sword of the spirit it's, it's an imperative he says you, you know, get on and do it take it up it's like your shield of faith take up your shield of faith take up helmet of salvation take up the sword of the spirit and the sword is not just a weapon of offence it's a weapon of defence as well um, and it's integral to the armour as a whole so we can't just wear the armour 
but not take up the sword of the Spirit. Or we can't just take up the sword of the Spirit and leave all the armour at home. And hopefully we'll kind of get through some of that as we go along. So that's a picture of a sword. Um, vaguely something like what the Romans might have had. Um, fairly short, used in hand-to-hand combat. And they fight sort of in rows, maybe a couple of metres apart, um, attacking their enemy and be very successful because the Romans were fairly successful as an army. So they had these swords to attack with. Um, and they used it, like I say, they used it in hand-to-hand combat. It wasn't a kind of distance warfare. When we looked at the shield of faith, the enemy would fire flaming arrows at the Romans, um, which is kind of where Paul gets his imagery from. But this is very much hand-to-hand combat. Um, and the shield can protect us from a distance. And that's, when I was sort of thought, thinking about this, if you take up the shield of faith... You can almost wear your pyjamas to wear the shield, of, take the shield of faith. If your enemy's throwing things at you from a distance, you can see it coming a bit, you can put your shield up, and you're all right if you catch it on your shield or it misses you. But you don't want to get into hand-to-hand combat with just a shield and a sword and your pyjamas. You definitely want the rest of the armour. So it's quite important when we get into battle as Christians, we have a whole armour on. Obviously as well, you're not going to want to get into battle without a weapon to fight with. If you just have a shield to kind of protect yourself a bit and kind of hide behind... The best that you're ever going to do is just about survive. You've got nothing to inflict any damage with. And the other thing I noticed as reading through, Paul only gives one weapon for us to fight with. If you check out what Romans would have had to fight with at the time, a normal Roman soldier would have had a short sword, he would have also had a couple of javelins, and he may have had um, some other weapons as well. But Paul doesn't say that. He says, you've got one weapon, which is the sword of the Spirit. And I think that that means for us as Christians that the one weapon is sufficient for all the battles and the fight that we're in. And I think also the, the armour is to be used all together um, to one end all the time. It's not just little bits and pieces here and there. We want to use all of it as Christians in our fight against the devil. So I've got three questions that we'll look through. Hopefully they'll make sense. Um, and then we'll finish off with a, a look at what Paul says just at the very end of the book of Ephesians to finish off this series. So my three questions are, what is the sword? How do we use it in the fight? And how does it work with the rest of the armour? So hopefully we'll get through those three questions and we'll look at some of Paul's closing um, statements as well. Right then. What is it? What is the sword of the Spirit that Paul talks about? Well, he goes on to say that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. So there's no doubt in what Paul's on about. There's no kind of or it could mean this, or it could mean this. Paul says, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And Paul says that the Word of God is the whole Bible. He talks about from, you know, it's the beginning to the end of the whole Bible. Even the bits that when we read them we think, I don't really get it, or I don't really like that bit. Paul says, all of it is the Word of God. It's not about picking the nice bits that we can kind of deal with, and we'll use them, but he says the whole thing is the Word of God. And I think there's something quite important about that. Because if you're, if you're fighting a battle with a sword, and fortunately, I don't think any of us have to do this. Maybe some parents do at times with their young boys. Um, but I think when you're fighting a battle with a sword, I've not done this, my brother does this kind of thing regularly because he likes his reenactment and stuff like that. And I stay well out of the way because it's all uh, a bit strange. But, um, but you have to have a well-balanced sword. It's very useful if it's well-balanced. He used to make like foam weapons to practice with, but he used to spend ages getting the weighting right in the handle and the end of the sword so that it would like swing around properly and be able to clobber somebody around with the head with it and you know, 
it's important that your sword is evenly weighted so that it's not a hindrance to you and it's easy to use. But for us as well, as Christians, when we come to our sword, we need to have a good understanding of the Bible and not just one little bit. If we have just one little bit that we understand, our sword's completely unweighted, it's not even. We end up like dragging it along behind us because at the very end of it's really heavy and the handle's really light and we can't use it properly. So as Christians, we need to have a really balanced sword and we can't be given to extremes because then we're, we're off balance. So when I read through one of, these book, one of the books um, in the series, the, the guy in it was saying, sometimes people write to me, he's a pastor of a church, and he said, sometimes people write to me and they say, they say sir, it's quite an old book, so they refer to him as sir. Um, people don't tend to do that anymore, but feel free to. They said, sir, um, I, when, when you talk from the Bible, I, I can't see anything in the Bible about God's election of people. And he said, somebody else will write to me and say, when you talk about things from the Bible, I can only see things about God's election of people, which is a big theological concept that Ian will deal with next week when I'm not here. In fact, no, I think I am here, but Ian can deal with it then anyway. Um, and he says, well, both those things come up in the Bible, God's election and people's free will. And you have to have a, a balanced view of both to understand what the Bible is really talking about. We can't be given to extremes. And I thought we can't be given to extremes, whether it's in, in doctrine, some people... Um, have strange doctrine that they, they believe. Or some people have a favourite book of the Bible and they just like focus on one book and they plough all their energy into trying to understand that book and not the rest of it. Um, or some people may have a favourite testament. And a, a few years ago I was at a conference and the guy who was speaking was quite funny and he was, he was chatting and he said, right, we're going we're gonna to turn to the book of 1 Kings now and if you look at the edge of your Bible, it'll be in the white bit because people tend to like, read through the New Testament quite a lot and the edge of it gets quite mucky. But the edge of your, your Old Testament... It's often quite plain. I thought, well, that's, you know, that's probably quite true looking at my Bible. The New Testament is a lot more worn than the Old. So we have to have a good view of the Bible, so we have an even view. And if we don't, it's probably a bit like fighting with a bit of a dodgy sword or a broken sword. Particularly if we choose to like take bits off and say, I don't believe that. We effectively take our sword, snap it over our knee and say, I'm not having the point because that's not very good. We have to take the whole Bible because that's what Paul's talking about. And fortunately for you, over the last sort of six months, Jai did a great series in interest slots about the Bible. So I don't need to cover off lots of this stuff. So, uh, Jai did some yeah, really good interest slots on it. And there are some sheets around still. And if not, you can probably find you some. But Jai covered off the idea that the Bible, God's Word, is infallible. There are no errors in it at all. It's perfect. It's inerrant. So we can, not only is it infallible, but it's kind of true. It's inerrant. There's nothing wrong um, in it whatsoever. It's complete. We don't need to add to it. And we definitely don't need to take from it. Because everything we need is in there. It's authoritative. It has the... the um, what's the word? The authority to kind of stand over us and tell us what to think and what to do if we trust and believe in it. And the last one that I came across in reading up was it's determinative. And I had never heard that word before, but it means to be able to determine between one thing and the other, um, which probably isn't very hard for you to understand but when it says it can determine things as you read it you can determine whether or not as Christians we should do something or we shouldn't it also can determine whether somebody is or isn't a Christian if they read through it so God's word is all those things but then Paul says that this is a sword of the spirit which is the word of God so it's not just the bible on its own but there's something of the spirit in there as well and as I was reading through it, I was sort of struggling with this idea a little bit. Um, and I think 
you know, I've, I've come down to some conclusions, and if you want to you know, challenge me about them later, feel free, we'll have a chat, and, uh, and we'll see how it goes. But I think you could say the Bible is powerless without the Spirit of God. Without God's Spirit, the Bible is powerless. Because the Bible tells us that when somebody becomes a Christian, or is in the process of becoming a Christian, it is God's Spirit who reveals the truth of it to them. So if we separate God's Spirit from the Bible, we can end up with a kind of wacky interpretation of the Bible. You can just read one verse. I heard there's a bit... Somebody took a a verse out of context, chopped it in half, and there's a bit where it says, top knot come down, and somebody spent a whole sermon preaching about women... They, why they shouldn't wear buns in their hair, which it was called a top knot. And you think that's, I'm not sure that that's in the Bible, but I, that's a great sermon. I'd love to have heard it. But if you, if you chop it about and just choose bits and pieces, you'll get strange ideas. And I don't think you have the spirits you know, helping him so much with that, uh, that exegesis there. So without the spirit, we can end up getting to wacky interpretations because we maybe just think, well, this feels good, so that's probably true, so I'll, I'll believe that. And I'll find a verse that backs that up and I'll go that way. The other option is, you can find somebody who knows every word of the Bible, but that isn't a Christian. The Bible says that the devil knows the Bible inside out, and he's not a Christian. I can guarantee that. So we can, somebody could know all of God's word perfectly, end to end. They could recite the whole thing. They wouldn't necessarily be a Christian. So for them, it wouldn't be the sword of the Spirit, because the Spirit isn't inside them, showing them the truth of what it is, and challenging them and leading them to Jesus. So we need to have an appetite for reading God's word and allowing God's spirit as our inward truth teacher um, to do his work. That was a a phrase that kept cropping up in one of the commentaries, that the spirit is God's inward truth teacher. And I thought, that in one way, that's a really good explanation of what the spirit does as we read the Bible. As we read through it, something we think, ooh, that sits a bit uncomfortably with me. And I think when I read through and the Bible says you should do this and you shouldn't do this, and that's a bit uncomfortable, that's because inside the Spirit is saying, you've got that wrong. You know, you need to change, you need to sort that out. And that's you know, kind of like getting a prod in the back from uh, somebody who knows better. You know, like your parents, when they like ram it straight between your ribs and it really hurts. You know, I think that's what the Spirit's doing when we read through and we find things that we feel a bit uncomfortable about. And the Bible says, you know, you should do this or you shouldn't do that. However, the Holy Spirit is not the Word of God. Okay? So, there's the Word of God and there's the Spirit. And the Word of God is a specific title that the Bible gives to Jesus as well. So, through reading our Bibles and allowing the Spirit to change us, we're being moulded to become like Jesus. hope some of that makes sense. I'll move on to my second question. And then, if it doesn't, you can... Call me later. How do we use the sword of the Spirit? Well, we've got a few good examples in the Bible of how um, the sword of the Spirit is used. And I want to just re- read you a, a little excerpt from the book of Acts, chapter 23. Where is it? There it is. Um, and it's about Paul. <coughs> it says, The next day, starting just in the previous chapter, The next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then before he brought Paul Paul and had him stand before them. 
Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Not particularly friendly, but that's what he says. Um, Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law. Yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. So Paul kind of, yeah, Paul gets hit and he shouts back and he insults him. Then he says, you know, you've broken, you've broken the law by doing that. And then those who were standing near Paul said, you dare to insult God's high priest. Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that he was a high priest for it is written. Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. So in that instance, Paul gets really quite cross. It's like they drag him in and you know, they, they ask him some questions. The high priest says, you know, smack him around the face. So the people stood by him do. And then Paul shouts back at the, the guy who's in charge, shouts back at Ananias, who he doesn't realise is, is the high priest. And as soon as they say to him, how dare you insult the high priest, Paul realises, actually the Bible says I shouldn't do that. And he effectively backpedals and apologises and he calms himself down because he knows that that would be breaking the law as well, which he's, he's gone and done by insulting him. But he uses the sword of the spirit on himself in that sense to kind of calm himself down and bring him, um, yeah, bring himself back to where he should be. And then there's uh, a more famous bit in, we go to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, to a story that I guess everyone will be um, a bit familiar with. And this is the temptation of Jesus in the desert. Um, so from Matthew chapter 4 it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, probably an understatement. Um, the tempter, the devil, came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now that would be really tempting. If you were powerful enough when you were hungry to talk to a couple of rocks and turn them into a couple of loaves of bread, you'd never go to Tesco's again in your life, would you? Because you'd just tell things to become what you wanted them to be. And it'd be brilliant and it'd be so much cheaper. And at that point, when Jesus is so hungry, you would think if he's going to crack now, you know, if he's going to crack, this is the time that it's going to happen. Well, Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Okay, so that one didn't work. Second time. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, now he's trying to use God's word against Jesus, who is God's word, so he's probably going to lose. Um, He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to, um, took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. So in that passage, we see how 
The devil tries to tempt Jesus to do what's wrong. And Jesus responds every time by using God's word, the sword of the spirit, to kind of bash him away. So the first one he says, look, you're really, really hungry. Why don't you just make yourself some food? That's not sinful. You know, make yourself some food. You'll be, you, know, you really want some food. And Jesus says, look, I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm fasting and I'm praying and I'm seeking God. And I'm doing that on purpose so that I can spend quality time with God. And to do that, it would, you know, it would, would lessen it. So Jesus says, no, man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And you'll find that in the book of Deuteronomy. So first, the devil tries to tempt Jesus by the lust of the flesh, his like, inward desire for, for just food. And then he says, right, let's go to the highest point in the city of Jerusalem, now, up on the top of the temple. And he says, why don't you just chuck yourself off? Because you know what will happen, I know what will happen, and it will be magic. As soon as you chuck yourself off here, out of heaven will pour angels. And they'll all swoop down, and they'll catch you, and they'll put you down gently. You'll not be hurt. And that will look absolutely cracking, won't it, Jesus? It's basically what the devil's saying. You won't be hurt. God has promised that you won't be hurt. Why, why don't you just do it? And Jesus said to him, you know what? The Bible also says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. So there, the devil kind of tempts Jesus by saying, look, let's just see if what God's saying is really true. Let's see if we can show off a bit and see if God will kind of help you out at the end. And then lastly, the devil tempts Jesus um, to take an easy way out. Jesus takes him up to a high mountain, he shows him all the kingdoms of the world, and he says, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of them. Every single one of them. And the reason I say he gives Jesus, he's given Jesus the option of an easy way out is because in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, they basically gave the, the ruling of, of the world into the hands of Satan. The Bible says that the world lies in the hands of the evil one. And the devil is there saying to Jesus, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give it all back. And Jesus could have gone, you know what? I could just get down on my knees and worship the devil here. And I'd not have to go to the cross in the future. But Jesus knows that the devil's a liar and he might not come good on the deal. And that it'd be wrong to do that. Because Jesus then says, using the sword of the Spirit, it is written, worship only the Lord your God. So every time the devil says something, and Jesus thinks, this is not the right thing to do. The way I'm going to deal with this temptation is I'm going to open my scriptures and I'm going to tell the devil what the Bible really says. So how does he use it? He, he just reads it to the devil and he says, no. I don't believe what you're saying. I believe what God says. So he basically, every time the devil kind of like swings his weapon at him, Jesus goes, no, I'm not having that. Then he stabs him with the word of God, which is basically an exciting thing for Jesus to do. And in the book of James, in chapter 4 and verse 7, it's the famous verse that says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And at the end of that passage, it says, after Jesus had responded with the sword of the Spirit three times, then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. So for Jesus, the devil was tempting him. Jesus resisted him by using the word of God, and the result was that the devil left him. And for Jesus, he was nourished um, by his obedience. So how do we use it? For us, you and me, we don't have the insight that Jesus did. Because he was perfect, he is the word of God, and the spirit within him. But we all own the sword of the spirit, don't we? We all have a copy of the Bible that we can read and that we can learn. And we have the spirit that lives in us. 
and we can ask him to continually help us to learn how to use it. Jesus knew how to use it. He's given us an example and we can follow it. So then, how else do we use it? I've not put a slide up for that. It's basically the same question. Um, our fight is not against flesh and blood. This is what we get in Ephesians. He says, our fight's not against flesh and blood. But our fight is against the sort of evil principalities and powers of uh, this dark world. So when we share the gospel with somebody, even though you can't see it in a physical sense, when we share the gospel into the kingdom of darkness that the devil has, into somebody who isn't a Christian, who doesn't know and love Jesus, who is effectively under his control, whether they know it or not, when you share the gospel with them, we take the sword of the Spirit and we start fighting against the, the darkness that there is. When we show the light and hope that there is in the gospel to somebody who, who doesn't know it, we start taking steps into the devil's kingdom. And if somebody turns from their sins and repents and they put their faith and their trust in Jesus, it's the equivalent of taking, taking ground in battle against the devil. So our challenge is to speak the gospel, to know the scripture and to use it to fight the devil off. Okay, so that's the first one. So how does it fit with the rest of the armour that we're given in this chapter? So like I've said, the sword is part of the whole armour. It's not an extra, it's not something that we can do without. So we'll have a quick, brief look at how it fits um, with the rest of the armour, uh, piece by piece. So if we don't take the sword of the Spirit, what does that do to our, our um, belt of truth? Breastplate of righteousness, sandals of the gospel of peace, um, helmet of salvation and shield of faith. What effect does it have if we don't take up the sword of the Spirit? Well, the first one is the belt of truth, which leads us to, to believe God's truth. We like, wrap ourselves around with God's truth. And it leads us to become people who are more like Jesus. Second. Okay. But then without it, if we don't believe God's word is true, let me just explain. This is if I don't take on my belt of truth, but I try and use the sword of the Spirit. I think I didn't explain that clearly enough. So if I take off my belt of truth, but I try and wield my sword of the Spirit, that's where we're going. Uh, what happens then? Without it, if I don't believe that God's word is true, as I try and share the gospel with somebody or try and defeat the devil, what will happen to me? Well, firstly, my life won't be like shot through with the, the truth and the integrity that, that God wants for me. When I share the gospel with somebody, if I don't believe it is true, the way that I live, the way that I share it, the way that I try and tell somebody about Jesus, it's going to fall flat on its face because as soon as it has no power in my life, it's going to have no power in anyone else's when I try and share it with them because they'll just think, you know, you don't believe it yourself. Why, Why should I possibly listen to you? But when somebody does believe the gospel... And when somebody who believes the gospel and lives out the gospel shares it with somebody else, they can see actually this thing has made a massive difference in your life. So maybe there is some truth behind it. So that's the first one. What about if we try and remove the, the breastplate of righteousness? So our full acceptance that our righteousness comes from God as a gift of Jesus. Well, firstly, I think if we remove the breastplate of righteousness... As Christians, the first thing that we would temp be tempted to do is try and work for our salvation and work for our righteousness. We'd start thinking, 
well, I've not got righteousness, so I'm going to have to work really, really hard. I'm going to have to say everything that I can do that will make me either appear righteous or will make me think that I'm being righteous. So I'll, I'll go to church every week without fail. I'll, I'll chuck as much money as I can in the, the collection box. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll help out at every single thing that's going on. And I'll, I'll sit and pray for, for 15 hours a day. All these things just to try and like build up righteousness points. But as soon as we start doing that, we're not believing the gospel that God's given us. And if that's how we live, and we try and share the gospel with somebody, they're going to think, this is mad. I don't want to believe something that makes me live like you. If you live like that, someone's going to think, I don't, I don't want to live like that. I don't want to live kind of terrified. I'm not quite sure if I've got it or if I've not got it. It just sounds really, really scary. I, I, don't, I don't want that. But we need to put on our breastplate. breastplate that's not, a difficult, not an easy word to say if you've got a small lisp in the back there. So, um, yeah, our breastplate of righteousness. If we try and live without that but use the sword of the Spirit, we dull our swords and we get nowhere. Next one, if we take off our sandals of the gospel of peace, our sure footing uh, based on the, the foundation of the gospel, and without that we try and share the gospel with somebody else, what happens then? Well, I reckon if we take off our sandals, if we, if we remove ourselves from a foundation and we're really unstable and wobbly and we, we kind of run all over the place. One minute we're, we're elated because we've had a really good time reading the Bible. The next minute, you know, something's happened and we're really, really sad and we're, we're weeping and gnashing our teeth and wearing sackcloth and ashes and all these sort of things and we're, we've got no stability because we're not thinking, how does the gospel speak to all these situations? Something great's happened, that's amazing. I love Jesus for that. Something difficult's happened. Okay, well, a lot of things happened that were difficult for Jesus and he trusted God throughout. So I'm going to ask him for his help to get me through. If we don't live like that and we share the gospel with someone, they'll think, well, you just seem like you're insane. Something good happens and you're really happy. Something bad happens and you're depressed for weeks. Again, I don't want to, I don't want to live like that. But if we put our sandals of the gospel of peace on, we have a solid foundation and we can stand on that. And when we stand on the gospel and we share the gospel with somebody else, they can see that actually in their life where they've not necessarily got the stability that they might want, they can see if I stand on the reliability of the gospel and I can trust in Jesus, all these difficulties that I'm facing, I get a new perspective on that spreads light to it all. Okay, what happens if we don't take up our shield of faith, our protection from the devil's lies, um, that, and with it we, get to, we fight together and we um, help to not be disunited? I'm not sure if that's a word. Um, so without it, without the shield of faith, we start being divided among the church we're not satisfied by the things God gives us and if we try and share the gospel with a, a divided church with people fighting all the time and, and cross with each other and not talking to each other and if we're not satisfied by God's word and we try and share the gospel of God's word with them they'll just think well the gospel sounds brilliant you know it's amazing that the Bible says that if you believe this then it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, male or female. You know, the Bible says Jew or Greek, if you're kind of complete opposite ends of the spectrum by, by what you used to believe, you're brought together and you can live as one big happy family. And if the church is divided and people are like across with each other and don't talk, they'll think that it's not true because we don't live in a way that shows it to be true. But with the shield of faith, trusting in Jesus for all those things, protecting us from the lies of the enemy, we should be able to more and more come together as a church family. When we share the gospel that says barriers are broken down, they'll look at the church and they'll think, actually, 
that's amazing. There are people in there who are like fantastically wealthy, talking to people who are really, really poor. There are people in there helping other people who have, have not got so much. They're, they're all like spending time together. I always think it's brilliant in churches because you get the weirdest bunch of people together and more often than not, they, they tend to get on reasonably well. You get people who, you know, who've got like PhDs and this, that and the other and people who have, have never picked up a textbook in their life, let alone done any sums, and they, they can become the best of friends. And it's just amazing how God can break down those barriers. Anyway, next bit, helmet of salvation. If I take off the helmet of salvation that protects us from the doubts and the discouragements and the deceits of the devil, that shapes the way we, we live and think, what happens when I try and share the gospel with somebody? Well, if somebody sees that we're not ever changed by what we believe, they'll think it has absolutely no power whatsoever. If you, were to, if you watched an advert on telly, like if you take the Daz adverts, you know, wash your things whiter than white, and if you thought, oh, that sounds good, I'll get some of that. You know, I'll clean my white shirts for work or whatever it is. I'll wash them, and when you take them out, they're, they're just a bit grey, like all my white things, because I've never separated lights and colours in my life. Um, but if you take them out and think, oh, they're, they're actually not any better than my old washing powder, I'm not buying that again. That's just a load of rubbish. Well, it's the same with the gospel. If the gospel doesn't shape and change the way that we live, then people aren't going to believe it as they look in on our lives. Okay. Paul, in the book of Ephesians, doesn't finish with just take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He says, and also praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. I've nicked that verse out of the ESV rather than the NIV because it's, it changes like one word and that makes um, makes uh, something come out a bit, a bit more clearly. So let's see what I've got written down here about prayer. So as we come to the end of our series, I thought having the armour is great. Understanding what the word of God is, our sword of the spirit, is great. But what use is it in any battle if there isn't some kind of communication with our commanding officer? The key to any victory really in battle has to be the strategy that we get that comes down from the top. When I, was, um, when I left university after two terms, I went to give my dad a hand. He was putting up a, an exhibition. No, taking, we were taking down an exhibition stand at the Birmingham NEC. I got the training. I was told where to go, what to do. And at the time, I was thinking about joining the RAF. Because my dad said, you're not allowed to leave uni until you've got a plan for what you're going to do. So I thought, I'll join the RAF, because that sounds all right. Um, you know, reasonable pension, planes, all that sort of thing, excellent. So I got my instructions. I was told to get off the train at the NEC, go into the, kind of the main foyer bit of their exhibition hall, wait there, and they'll come and find me. So I got into the exhibition centre, got into the foyer bit of where I was meant to meet them, and thought, I know what I'm doing I'll go and find the stand and get, like, get to work because I know what they're building or what we're taking down. It's fine. Started walking off through the exhibition hall, hopelessly lost, no idea where I was. Got a phone call from Dad's boss. Um, he said, where are you? He said, well, um, to be honest, I'm not quite sure. He says, can you make your way back to the, the foyer? So I gradually did. And as I got back there, he says, ah, if you're going to join the RAF, the first thing you have to remember is always obey the last command. And I didn't do that. And I got hopelessly lost, and we wasted a couple of hours trying to find me. Um, but in battle, it's vitally important that we know what our commanding officer has to say. And it has to be passed on to people like us in the Christian battle, who are the soldiers 
with God. We have to know something of what God says. So firstly, we have the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. We read that and we know what God says. And secondly, we have prayer, where we can talk to God and God can respond to us. And the reason I've taken this verse out of the ESV rather than the NIV is because in the NIV, they only use the word three times in this verse, whereas in the ESV, they use it four. So in this verse, we have the four alls of prayer. Okay? Just because it's not there. One of them is changed to a different verse, uh, word in the NIV, but uh, we all like things that have the same word in. makes it easy to remember. So the four alls of prayer is what Paul finishing off this letter with. And I thought it's important to just cap the armour of God off with this. So the first one, praying at all times in the Spirit. That's the first one. The first all of prayer is praying at all times in the Spirit. So Paul says our communication with God should be a constant thing. We need to be constantly in our prayers. Now, that's not just kind of hands and knees, eyes closed, praying and, and pouring over these things because if, if you've always got your hands together and your eyes closed you're going to crash your car when you're driving to work that's not a really very useful thing to do but Paul says that we, have to, we should be praying and we should be talking to God constantly so obviously we can't do it 100% of the time 24 hours a day, 7 days a week because well, we, we never sleep let alone anything else but I think Paul is saying your lives should be filled with a steady communication between you and God whether that means you kind of get used to praying a couple of times in the hour, like, like all the hours that you're awake, where you just say, you know, a couple of short prayers. They go, thank you for this, and please help me with this. Something crops up that you're not sure how to deal with. You say, God, I'm not quite sure what this is, but as I go along trying to work this out, please help me. Um, however we work it out, Paul says, prayer shouldn't just be a one-off thing, or a once-a-week thing, or a once-a-month thing, or a once-a-year thing. Prayer in our lives as Christians should be constant. It should be thing, something we do regularly that's the first one the second one is, um, and with all prayer and supplication to that end keep alert with and we'll stop there because there's another rule so the second one is that we must ask God for things particularly when we're fighting sin because Paul's talking about fighting the devil as Christians together so he says we must ask God for things and I think if we come to God in prayer and say God I'm really struggling with this temptation, I'm really struggling to overcome what the devil's trying to get me to do here. Please help me. That is a prayer that God will be delighted to answer. If we're praying, God, please help me win the lottery this week, that's not likely something that God is going to be that pleased to answer. But if you say, God, I'm really struggling with this, please help me to delight in Jesus much more than I'm, I feel like I would delight in this sin that the devil is telling me I'm going to delight in it. Please help me to get that balance right. I believe that God will be overjoyed to answer those prayers and to help us through. He might not make it you know, dead easy to just like conquer all sin because that's not how it works. But he'll help us and he'll encourage us. He might, um, we might have a friend that will give us some passage in the Bible to, to read through and to understand and to be delighted by the word of God a bit more. But if we're asking God to help us to delight in his word and delight in the Lord Jesus rather than in sin, I think that... God will be really pleased with us if we ask those sort of prayers. So the third all is perseverance and making supplication for... Stop there, there's another all. So the third one is perseverance in prayer. And don't think that just because you maybe said a prayer once and you didn't get the answer 
maybe that you wanted, that it's not worth praying again. We see people in the Bible praying for things, say, two, three times and more, um, and they don't get the answer that they want. As Paul says that he, he prays for the thorn in the flesh that he has, a problem that he's got, we don't, we don't know what it is, but he prays for it three times. And every time God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you. But Paul kept praying, God, please take this, this problem from me. Whatever it is, take it from me. Um, and God said no. But don't think, just because you didn't get the answer you were expecting the first time, that it's not worth carrying on praying for. For Paul, eventually, God says, my grace is sufficient for you. So basically, even though it's difficult, even though you wish you didn't have this problem, I want you to delight in my grace more than you're worrying about this problem that you've got. Which is a massive challenge. It's not always very easy to do that. And I think particularly where sin is involved, if we're struggling with a certain sin, don't think that you've, because you've prayed for God to help you once, that it's not worth praying again. Um, because we struggle with the same sins time and time again. Okay, so the last one of the four rules is for all the saints. Now when the Bible uses the term saints, it's not meaning like Saint Christopher or Saint Nicholas or you know anything like that or Saint Martin or, or any of the saints. I don't really know many of the saints because um, I've never really looked into it in that sense. Um, I have friends who go to high Anglican churches and they have saints days so Every other Sunday there's like a saint's day and I've got no idea what they're on about. But it's a famous saint who is a Christian in the past who's done something really good and they celebrate that once a year on a certain day. Well, I've never understood any of it because I've never been to one. But in the Bible when it talks about saints, it doesn't mean a great Christian from the past. It doesn't even you know, mean you know, one, of, one particular one like Mother Teresa or somebody like that. It means anyone in the world who is a Christian. Okay? That's all it means when it says saints. But then when it says pray for all the saints it means we have to pray for all the Christians we have to pray for the Christians around the world but it also means we have to pray for those Christians maybe that are a bit closer to home that we don't always see eye to eye with that we kind of maybe disagree on certain issues and struggle to get along with some of the time Paul is saying in this battle, in this fight you are standing alongside these people shoulder to shoulder and you need to pray for them that God would encourage them, that God would lift their eyes to Jesus, that God would shape them to be like him. Because if you're not praying that for them, if you're, you're struggling and you're just a bit cross with them and you're not dealing with them at all, all that's going to happen is you're going to let the devil get in there and there'll be a difficulty between you and that will not make your battle with sin any easier at all. I was thinking, I bet soldiers who are fighting wars today, when they're like in the midst of battle, shooting at the enemy or whatever they're doing they're probably not thinking the chap next to me he really annoys me I'm not going to cover his back if he's not going to cover mine they're probably thinking right we're all on the same side here we're all going to do what we can to get through this together and as Christians we're all on the same side and we have to realise that even when we have misunderstandings and differences we should support everyone else in prayer ok so this is the armour of God so the belt, uh, the belt of truth truth I'm going to stop saying S's from now on because they come in everywhere. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the sandals of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. And I've added in pray in the spirit because Paul kind of tags it on as the end. If you're not quite sure what to do, if you're not quite sure which piece of the armour to use, Paul just said, just pray. Just pray. If you're not quite sure which bit of armour you're going to it's the most important thing at that time, just pray and God will help you. But 
as we started off this series, at the end did a couple of introductions. It's important to realise that as Christians, and as people who maybe aren't Christians, we're all in a battle. And to ignore the fact that we're in a battle is to get destroyed by it. If you're, for people who aren't Christians, or who don't, don't realise that there is a battle going on, it's like you're an unarmed person walking through you know, the middle of a war. And you're going to get destroyed by it from one side or the other. But for Christians, God provides an armour for us to wear as we fight this battle. He provides us an armour to survive and to support each other and to take ground. And as Christians as well, as well it's our job to take up the armour, to put it on and to use it. It's our job to stand together and fight side by side. And the armour of God closes off the book of Ephesians. It's only six chapters in the New Testament. And I recommend that today, before you go to sleep tonight or whenever, that you pick it up and you read through the book of Ephesians just so you can kind of see where Paul's come from and where he's got to with the armour of God. And through the book of Ephesians, there are two main battlegrounds that Paul talks about. And two main battlegrounds that he mentions and then he finishes off with the armour. The first battleground that is fought on is the battleground between us and God. If the devil can separate a communication between us and God, then he's going to win because we've got no uh, source of life and joy and hope and peace coming from God. And the other battleground is between us and each other. If you can cause divisions in the church, you can make it ineffective. If you can cause divisions um, within families, you make them ineffective. And the answer to both that you read through the book of Ephesians is the cross. He points us to Jesus all the time and he says, look, Jesus has given you the truth. If you live in the light of the truth, these things will become clearer. Jesus has given you your righteousness. You don't need to work for it. You don't need to compete for it. Jesus has given you it. Basically, the answer to all the problems that Paul gives us is the cross. If we're struggling with our relationship with God, our up and down relationship, we look to the cross and we thank Jesus that he's taken the sin the lies that the devil says that we're guilty of our sin and that we need to, to kind of work them off, we can thank him that that's not true. And we can thank him that because of Jesus we can talk to God and that, that God loves us and we can see his love for us. And when the devil says and like tries to plough in uh, between our relationships between us and each other, we have to look to the cross and thank God that even though the person who's maybe upset us isn't perfect, we thank God that we're not perfect, but that Jesus is and he died for each one of us. So as we close this series, I just want to challenge you to this afternoon, this evening, whenever, to get the book of Ephesians, read through it, and see how God answers the battlegrounds that we're fighting on. So I'll pray, and then we'll finish with a final song. Father, we thank you for the armour of God. Father, we thank you for the book of Ephesians. Father, we thank you for all these amazing truths and, and promises that you've given us. Father, I pray that as a church you'd help us to take up the armour of God and to use it. Father, we thank you for the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Father, we thank you that the Spirit is our, our indwelling truth teacher who leads us into all truth. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to be people who are, are getting to know and getting used to the word of God. Father, I pray you would help us to know how to use it when difficulties come. And Father, I pray that you would help us to be um, breaking down barriers between you and us and us and each other by reading the word of God, trusting it and believing it. And Father, I thank you for the Lord Jesus. Father, I thank you that his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension means that sin, Satan, death and hell have no power over us today. 
if we put our faith and our trust in you, you can help us through all the difficulties that we face. Father, I thank you also that when we make mistakes and we slip up, you can forgive us through, uh, through the Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that you'll change us to be more and more like him through what we've heard in this whole series and, and what we've been looking at today. Amen.